Good morning, everyone. We're going to open the podcast this morning here at the Voice of the Feral with a moment of silence for everybody who is being affected by COVID-19. So we're going to take a moment of silence. And if you know anyone who is suffering, or you think someone is, do the right thing and pick up the phone and get some help. Okay, let's get started. of the feral podcast i am your host ben hannon sit back relax and enjoy the show i'm i'm recording now you're recording now okay we're back live okay so welcome everybody back to the voice of the feral podcast i am your host ben hannon we got jason mitchell and temple texas we yep. Took a little break. yep so we're talking about at this point in the story we are into iverson is in its heyday you guys go to the worlds you're playing in the big leagues uh, your friend wins the world, and then you come back, and you go off and do your own thing. And then let's fast forward to now. I meet you, and I hear this story that you guys are are turning duck calls in my uncle's barn. Uh, <laughs> right. let's, let's let's go let's let's go ahead to that. And how did you end up getting involved in that situation? Well. We might need some clarifying comments from Uncle Kim on this, but I can't remember if I think I think Kim wanted to turn some calls or I wanted to help my dad out or a combination of both. But anyway, Kim started helping my dad out by making calls in my okay. absence of helping my dad. Okay. Which was pretty awesome. Okay. And um yeah, so I think he was making parts just, you know, when he wasn't flying, he was down messing around in the garage making barrels or whatnot for my dad. Mm-hmm. Okay, and, uh, yeah, I remember that. I don't remember how long that lasted, um, but uh, it did for a while. And it was, I think it was, it was helpful to my dad. Really? Yeah, and I think, I can't remember, and it may be that, I think part of the deal was, Okay, now I'm remembering right. So when I was still in seminary, I had some machines where I was turning parts for my dad. That was it. Okay, here we go. Okay. Oh, okay. Cobwebs are falling off. And so when Cheryl and I moved north. The cobwebs, yeah, okay. Uh, I brought those machines with me, and then I think I put them in Uncle Kim's uh, barn, and then he started messing around. I don't think I did a ton of work for my dad up in Vancouver because I was pretty busy playing the church. Uh, yeah. Kim allowed me to store some things there, and then he he started playing with it, and then he did a bunch of help with my dad. 
Okay. Yeah. So it's pretty impressive. And your dad, he raised your whole family on this whole Iverson thing, right? I yep. mean, he had really transferred out of the city work and this became his. Yep. Got a, got a younger sister, had an older brother. He passed away when he was 29. He had cystic fibrosis. So we all, so kind of the two big things for me growing up was family business and then my brother's disease, which, you know, you know, took a lot of attention. Um, but, uh, you know, I wouldn't change any of it. Um, so yeah, like in, in a way having a family business, when you have a, uh, one of the kids who is in and out of the hospital was helpful because he could set his own schedule and, you know, we could be available to attend to some of those things, but also work hard and make sure that we, you know, we are making duck calls when we have to. So I don't know, and you can share as much as you like about this, but what is, give me the rundown on what is cystic fibrosis and what does that do and where does that, <clears throat> tell me about well, that. Yeah, yeah. So he was born with it. It's a genetic disease. And so people, uh, mom and dad have to be carriers of this defective gene and then they have to match into the cystic fibrosis kid. So my sister Katie and I could have been cystic fibrosis kids, but we weren't, but my brother was. Um, so we have, we got part of one, or, but not both. And it's a, it's a disease that affects the lungs and the digestion primarily. So cystic fibrosis kids basically sound like smokers because they're not able to break down the mucus in lungs. And so they spend a good portion of their uh, days fighting against music, mucus buildup. They get infections, have to go in the hospital. Um, so they do physical treatments, inhalers, like a regimen of two or three times a day. My parents would do physical treatments on my, my brother. Um, as, you know, as he got older, they, they automated a lot of that equipment that now they've modernized all that. So they wear chest things that shake and they, they literally have to just cough, cough up spit. Like if you've ever had a really, really bad cold, chest cold, and you've hacked and hacked and hacked and pulled up like one of those really gross like things and you spit and you go, Oh my God, that just came out of me. That was like every day, like three times a day. We had to do that. So that's sort of, it's a tough existence. They've, they've made a lot of progress in cystic fibrosis. So for him to live to 29 at the time was pretty miraculous because the average age was like 19. Oh no. Um, so yeah. So they, um, and now the average age has pushed into the thirties. So they've, they've improved the medicinal care, the treatment and a lot of that stuff. But like, in our current state, like cystic fibrosis folks are super vulnerable right now to the COVID virus because they're already vulnerable because of all that's going on in their lungs anyhow. So um, anyway, it's um, something that we were very involved in, obviously because of my brother, but um, yeah. Yeah, I'm sorry to hear that. That's a... Yeah, he was great. He was awesome. You know, he, he competed in duck calling contests some himself. He didn't get into it as deep as I did, but... Okay. He was uh, he was a great dude. We were grateful to have him for as long as we did. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's weird to say that. Like, oh, he's really happy. He only made it to 29. But it's like, at the time, we were like, we all knew in our heads, like, it's a possibility. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, yeah. Um, yeah, and that, you know, I've been through that with some people that, that have been in my life where you you feel relieved that they don't have to live like that anymore. Yeah. When they finally have no return, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, when they finally do go on, it's like you know what? That's that's a relief that that guy doesn't have to 
to do that anymore. Yeah. What well, was a super blessing and a curse for him was all the way through high high school, he looked normal, right? He was physically about the size of everybody else. He didn't like a lot of times you meet CF people who have CF and they're and they're very frail, you know, because they can't they can't digest and benefit from digestion, so they tend to they look like they're sick. He looked healthy, which was a problem because the PE coach would go, well, why am I on Mitchell's like smoking too much or whatever? Well, no, he had cystic fibrosis, dude. Calm down. Like, <laughs> okay. They were getting on him at, at yeah. school. Yeah. So he, he kind of, he, he didn't like to make a big deal of it. Right. So like his buddies knew and we knew obviously, and then people in his class would, but like, if you were the PE coach and, and one of his buddies didn't say, Hey, back off, dude, he's got cystic fibrosis. He wouldn't know. Yeah, okay. He kind of liked it that way, but then you would hear stuff like that, and you're like, you know, people are just funny, quick to judge. Yeah, you know what I mean? yeah they, yes, they are. They are quick to judge. We all are, man. I catch Absolutely. myself. Like, you know, I'll see somebody, and I just think, gosh, you know, just what are you thinking? You know, just stop. Just just worry about what you're doing, you know. And stop and and stop trying to compare yourself to other people. It's just dumb. It's just dumb. He was uh, one of the greatest gifts that I received from him. Yeah, exactly. One of the greatest gifts I received from him was that he lived his life like he wasn't going to live that long. So really, he was super, he was super generous. Like, was he, did he actually live like that Tim McGraw song? <laughs> you, know, you know what I'm talking about? You know what I'm saying? Uh, yes. Right, the next three years or whatever. Like I, you know, I'd be looking for like a fourteen dollar gift for Christmas, and he'd buy me a Remington eleven eighty seven. Wow, like that's the way. And then he was like that with my sister. He was like that with other kids in the hospital. He was like that with his girlfriend, my parents. Like, if you were around him, like you benefited from his generosity. So like, I was a tightwad like growing up in my twenties. Like I was always trying to save for school, and like I'm going to you know do this. And but I was just like, like that's just one thing that I sort of embraced after he passed was like. We don't take any of this crap with us, you know what I mean? Like, and it, it was it was a it was a huge gift, you know, because and um, it was awesome. He was awesome. Yeah, that's a that's just a I don't know. It's one of those things that happens here in the world, and it it sucks. But you try to you try to be grateful for the time that you do get with those kind totally. of people. Yeah, I have. What was his name? Matt. Matt, well, respect. Shout you know, out. Yeah, shout out shout Matt. Out. And what does your sister end up doing? What's her what's her name? So she's um she's married, three kids. Um okay. she runs a family business. Her husband's a, a very talented um uh landscape person. So he does anything that you can build or develop in a backyard, he'll do it. Awnings, decks, gardens, and he He's very creative, fences, like, but, you know, anything outside, he doesn't do inside, but he runs, a, they run a crew and they, you know, very talented, very awesome person. So they've got three, I got three, uh, two nephews and a niece and, uh, and they live in Nevada close to my parents, which is kind of nice because they're close okay. during this whole stuff, which is great. Man, what a, yeah, what a neat way to grow up, you know, then doing the hunting and your dad and his passion for carving and artistry. And, and you were telling me you lived, didn't you live like next to somebody who had old school, turn of the century, yeah. depth card skills, right? So I mentioned, it, yeah, so. We have to talk about that, right? 
in the neighborhood, and we lived a little bit outside of town. It was a little country-ish. Okay. Um, my dad, we had a piece of property that where the house was, and then we had this separate garage where we had the duck call shop. So, okay. you know, like we made duck calls down there. And so the neighborhood knew that we were the duck call people and people would come in occasionally and buy, but mostly it was just us, you know, running machines. And, um, but down the street was a guy probably 10 years older than my dad, World War II vet. He was like shot down in Germany, Stalag 17 in prison camp. Wow. Spent okay. his life as a painter, but he retired at 55. So that was the time I was in high school. So he was, he was like fishing and hunting and he'd take me duck hunting. He'd take me, you know, sturgeon fishing, salmon fishing. So when I wasn't going with my dad, which was a lot, you know, he'd come by and, Hey, what are you doing Saturday? I'm like, what am I doing Saturday? Nothing. I'd go with you. So he carved, there's a, a very world famous duck carver by the name of, um, uh, uh, I'll come up with his name, I forget, but he, he carved wooden decoys at the turn of the section through the market hunting days. And Bill Neal, our neighbor, Stalag 17, shot down in Germany guy, he got carving basically from the influence of this guy. So from like the end of World War, he carved his own decoys. Well, as time went on, people wanted to buy those decoys because he actually used them. And so he carved out of redwood stumps, mallards, widgeon, teal, bluebill, canvas back, you know. Wow, like out of redwood, out of redwood, we're talking yeah, about so red, California, yeah. California redwood trees. Yep, so he'd get these blocks and he'd, and I'd be, I'd deliver his paper and he'd be in there carving on wood and painting decoys like, um, I, can, I can't, but anyway, so the fact that I grew up around him my dad's friend, Rich Radaganda, who was a fabulous painter, decoy carver, Bill Neal, decoy carver, dad, duck call maker. Like I grew around like a generation of people that in a way are, are sort of like that era is, is moving on. Like, because we've all learned how to make decoys and duck calls a lot faster. And so we're not interested in really using wooden decoys to, to, to hunt over anymore. We're just, we're, we want them to sit up on the shelf. So like, I feel very lucky to have been around that, not just because I got to go hunting with a bunch of different people and that was awesome, but just because like the level of Americana that existed via my dad, Bill, Rich, these people who were in this universe that, that influenced me as a person. I, you know, um, I'm not a, I'm not a talented artist, but I have a, um, a, an interest in, in, in things creative, you know what I mean? So, well, yeah, you're not an artist in the sense that you don't, you know, you don't have black eyeshadow on and, and, you know, make an ass out of yourself on social media every day. Yeah. You're not an artist that way, but you're, you're one of the most talented people. I mean, you're, your your rap sheet is just incredible. You know, it's just like, you have all I this. That. Yeah. It's just, and that's the art of it, you know, that your yeah. talent and your ability, that is art. So I guess, okay, this is my question. And this will be a good way to kind of sag, start sagging towards the, the switch, which is going to be our next, our next chapter of your story. Yeah. Um, on the next pod, which we're going to talk about is going to be how you kind of transitioned out of the hunting world 
and started shaping those talents and your ability to engage with people from, cause I still want to touch a little bit on it. We're going to touch on the sportsman shows on the next one leading off. We'll start there and then we'll morph us in and that's what yep. we're going to do. But for now, I want to know something I've thought about for years. How does a guy take a square, you know, a square block of wood? How do you take a square block of wood? And then for folks at home who need to understand this, out of this square block of wood comes this beautiful detailed decoy of a duck. But I can't think of the name of it. Wow, really? And just, and just pull off chunks. And he would just round it up. Wow. And okay. so they would build the body separate from the head. Okay. Then you put a you put a little dowel on the head, and you end up you know drilling a hole in the body and then setting the the head on top. So really, oh, really, oh really, yeah, that's what most of them do. I don't know. Maybe some folks do it with the full block of wood, but most of the time they they use they do the head separate. That's I've always wondered that because the head seems like it would just be take so long to get that out of a out of a squared block by hand. I would I would think you would spend a full year on the head. You know, so, unless and that's unless, another another practical reason full time job. You know? Yeah, and and that's another practical reason that I think they would do the head separately. Is you really need um, good grain on the head because you have the, the little bill that goes down to the small little peak, and if you have like a knot to your point, if you've got a knot down there, it's going to break off. So some of the smaller pieces, whereas on the body, it's it's more of a whole piece. It's a bigger block. You don't have that much subtlety unless you're doing some you know severe wing stuff. But the, yeah. the old working decoys, they had very simple wing, you know, um, indentations. Really? So okay. you could have a blemish on a block of wood, potentially fill it with, you know, some epoxy and resin or something. Right, right, right. Sand it over and then paint it, and you'd never know it was there. And it wouldn't, right. wouldn't ruin the integrity. But if you, had, if you had a knot on the side of a bill of a duck head, well, that thing's going to break off the first time it hits the side of your boat, probably. Yeah. So. I remember I remember the first time that I saw a hand-carved decoy, and it was somewhere, I don't remember where it was, but I remember seeing the decoy. I can still see it, and it was, <clears throat> it was old, and it had kind of like a grade look to it, but it was some type of a sea duck, and I, and I didn't know. It looked like a, you know, some kind of a weird-looking eider-type-looking bird, but I just remember looking at it, and I remember thinking, I remember feeling at the time that, I felt like I was looking at something that was <clears throat> that had been lost in a that that had been t almost time capsuled into history, and I mean it looked so old to me. Yeah. And I remember thinking like the stories and the people. I, you could almost hear the wind of the decoy as it was sitting there and the things that it, it has seen. You know. And that's the way that I always feel about duck hunting it. <clears throat> and, and like you said, you know, going out with your dad and that kind of stuff. So, um, yeah, that's really fascinating. So you got to be around basically all aspects of the uh, designing and production of decoy and then essentially turn into duck calls. Yeah, I mean, I, I did, I, as you can tell me, kind of, you know, limping through, I carved one decoy in my life, and I don't even know where it is. My dad probably has it somewhere, and it wasn't that good. I made okay. a lot of duck calls growing up. Um, right. But I watched my, you know, 
So, yeah, I mean, growing up, he, he put me on the drill press because it was safe, and I just drilled these straight holes in blocks of wood, you know? Yeah, um, yeah. yeah, that's right. Yeah, go ahead and show that. That's it. Is that yeah, just this, a, is a, this, this ends up becoming the barrel part of the duck hall, but you put that okay. on a lathe and spin it and turn it and okay. turn it into okay. what would be a barrel, which is this piece here. Okay, so, so that, okay. Wow. So you just get that and you shape it down. And that's what my, my I remember my uncle, that's what they were doing with, right? Yeah, he, he was, was probably making, he was probably making barrels would be my guess. Is what Kim okay. Okay. Yeah. okay. Um, he might've been doing, uh, doing the rough turning on the stoppers too, but I don't, I mean, it's been a while. I, okay. I so the back is called a stopper. Yeah. This is called a stopper. Um, okay. Got the reed and the cork on this section. This is the bulk of your work goes into this. Okay. Uh, this is really like, once you get it cut to size, you drill a hole um, and then you turn it on the lathe um, and you know, you're good to go pretty much. Okay, okay. But so then walk me through the stopper. I mean, that's, a, that's an intricate process. So you cut yeah, that. So if you look at this piece here and I'll take it apart, but so imagine this being a smaller piece of wood, you're gonna end up drilling this all the way through a square block of wood, you're gonna turn it, you're going to turn it round into a shape like this. So imagine it didn't have all these cuts on this side. So you okay. end up with this shape. And then the way that we end up doing it is we take, uh, I'm going to take this reed out for a second to show you. Yeah. Uh, what we end up doing is cutting this surface here. Okay. Uh, by running it into a saw blade that's designed in a, a jig designed to get that exact surface. Wow. And then okay. um, we drill, we using a, a router, we cut down through the forks and then create that, that, the, what ends up being the extension of the drill. So you, your initial drill comes down to about the end of the forks. Okay. And then, and then you just extend the channel down. So it ends up being a lot of, you know, intricate work. So but most of the time, by the time you're done making those cuts, other than cleaning this up, like the, the burrs off of it, it's ready for a reed and a cork. And sometimes there's a little, you know, manipulation you need to do to make it sound the way you want it. But um, the beautiful part is, is that, you know, you can, Iverson's sound a certain way, but like any wood call, any handmade call is going to have a little like variation from one to one, you know. That's right. So people with a fine ear can tell the difference. Yeah. You know. Yep. That's right. Yeah. Well, that's a very amazing process, and um, I, I don't know. I just hope you guys don't ever go out of business. You know, I, I always felt so grateful to be, to have somebody that was involved with a little bit of that and being able to grow up hunting with you and, and go on some hunts. Um, I can remember some really funny stories going hunting with rj and you and having you know we were kids so yeah it was awesome our guns around and you know uh but uh I remember, you know, do you remember that hunt where we were i believe on my i had that old um i had an old boat and you me and your dad went out and then we didn't we didn't it was like a monday and you know we both oh, Hey, yes, I do. And yes, I, I do. A of me and your dad convinced ourselves that because we were on navigable waters, we could hunt right next to the refuge. Yeah. And we both, we, 
we shot geese and then we both got like tagged right there. I do remember, and I can't remember. Did you guys? Did they come out into the slough, or did you actually take the geese in and then? Because the guy was like, it was Bruce. I remember the guy's name was Bruce, and he yeah. was just being such an idiot. Just being, he was, he was giving you guys such a bad time about it, and it was like a gray area. No one had a real definite, you know, answer for it. It was like half legal, and then it was like questionably maybe not legal. I think like it, but it, it was all boiled legal. down to the fact that because we were tied off, because we were tied to the bank, we were on refuge <laughs> property, as opposed to had we been floating in the middle and shot those geese, we might have been yeah, legal. Just, so the whole thing was ridiculous, but of course, you know, the two ministers got um, tagged that day, which was great. Listen, man, it's ridiculous, and 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 I want to say this too. Not all, of, not all of these wildlife officers are that way. I have personally been able to deal with <clears throat> some outstanding, absolutely, and they have officers. a good job. Yeah, from fishing game in in uh, in many states, but w- when you have ones that make it difficult, it really sucks. I remember one time. Um, I caught the biggest salmon to date that I've ever caught, which I'm not much of a fisherman, so please don't think that I'm saying that. But for the little bit of salmon fishing I did, I caught a pretty good-sized fish. I I hooked a 40-some-odd pound Chinook out here up by Bonneville Dam years and years and years ago. Got pictures of it, you know, still to this day. And so we had – we had – caught the fish in a, in a relatively small smoker craft. I was with a real good friend of mine named Matt Roland. Shout out to Matt. Great guy. Friends to this day. Yep. And his wife and kids, uh, wife just survived cancer hmm. and, uh, and lived through that. So, uh, it's a big answer to prayer. So, um, anyways, uh, our condolences and, and congratulations to the Roland family. But, yeah, so we're reeling up. It's terrible weather, snowing. We're gonna leave, and you, I usually suck at fishing, anyways. Matt's really good. I he should be a fishing guide, and so we're leaving, and I hook this big salmon. So long story short, we we end up getting halfway dangerous. The the, the river's coming up real big. Water's getting big. <clears throat> it's a smoker craft. We go over to the Oregon side to try to tame this fish down because it's. It's just getting crazy, you know, just repeatedly getting crazy in the boat and we're trying to get it to stop and it's, it's beating us up. And so we get over to the other side and get this fish taken care of. And just about the time we get done, this guy comes out of the woods and it's Oregon fishing game, you know, and he wants to know what we're doing on the bank and why the boat's there and why, you know, where'd we get catch the fish and, so I was like, man, you know, what is the chances that I actually catch a salmon and it's huge and then that happens, you know. Yeah. But exactly. We passed with flying colors. There yeah. nothing yeah. happened. We had all of our stuff. We had our licenses, you know. So but he was he was trying to make it difficult, you know, and I just I just I didn't forget that. So yeah. that was yeah. my point. Is just I just the good and the bad and everything, you know. Um and and you just never know where they're going to be so uh we just we take it for what it is um i don't know do you have anything in closing uh for 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 chapter one here as far as uh that you would like to say or 
Uh, no, this has been great, man. I just, I love the freeform conversation. Um, I appreciate you initiating it. And I don't, yeah. I, I can't think of anything in particular, but I'm sure we'll, we'll riff again and have all kinds of other stuff. To talk oh about. yeah. Yeah. Well then I'll, um, I'll just kind of wrap it up for you. So for those of you listening and, and we'd like to thank everybody who has listened into the voice of the Pharaoh podcast. Um, you know, Jason has just done so much good and we're, we're not even into that yet. So, um, we're not even into that. So you guys who are listening, uh, come back. Uh, we're going to be chapter two. We're going to get, we're going to kind of finish up with the, with the waterfowl and the, and the hunting. And we're going to, we're going to get into your, your pivot. That's now it's like the cool word is pivot. You know, if you're pivoting into something, then, then you, then you got your shit together and you know what you're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> but if you tell somebody or you, that, or you have, or you're up against the wall and you have to pivot, right, like that's in my whole life. <laughs> if you tell them that you're making a transition, then, then you don't understand it. Okay, friends. The question is, and where we're going with all of this. What's going to be your legacy? What's going to be my legacy? Who are you going to choose to be? And what people are you going to leave behind? And what are they going to do with what you taught them? Are they going to do good things? Or are they going to do bad things? That's what we're trying to get at. So it's a question for all of us. Come back next week. We're going to Temple, Texas, way down south. We're going to have Jason Mitchell on the line. You guys, it's going to be great. Thank you for listening to the Voice of the Pharaoh podcast, and we'll keep a light on for you. <laughs>